Welcome to the Life's Hard Succeed Anyway podcast, where you will hear transformational stories, positive encouragement, and practical strategies to help you grow your mindset, reach your potential, live your dreams, and experience a purpose-driven, impact-filled life. Here's your host, Alan Blaine. All right, this is Alan Blaine, and I am fired up to interview our special guest today, my friend, Scott LaPierre. Scott is a teaching pastor of Woodland Christian Church in Woodland, Washington, where Nicole and I used to live. Well, not in Woodland, but in Washington <laughs> State. Uh, he's an author and a conference speaker. He holds an MA in biblical studies from Liberty University. Scott and his wife, Katie, have, get this, 10 children, and they are passionate homeschooling advocates. Scott is a former school teacher and former army officer. Scott, welcome to the Life's Hard Succeed Anyway podcast. You ready for this? Yeah, Alan, thanks a lot. Been looking forward to this as well. Glad to be here with you and your listeners. Glad to have you. Now, 10 children, did I misspeak? Is the 10th like a couple of weeks away from birth? I don't know when this will air, but it's October 12th today and Katie's due toward the end of October. So I could get a text message in this interview, you know, that <laughs> I doubt yeah, it. But. We've got to continue it at another time. Well, this is yeah. awesome. Well, I'm so glad you're on here with us. And this will, this will be a great conversation. I know we talked a little bit about maybe some marriage talk and, and some other things that you are uh, well-versed in. And I guess I could say an expert in. You've written several books. We can get to that in a minute. But you know, I've given just a brief overview there of who you are, but can you give our listeners just a little more backstory to how you got to where you are today? Yeah, that sounds good, Alan. So I grew up with my wife in Northern California. Neither of us were Christians. I, after high school, went through ROTC. I was an officer in the army, like, like you shared, then got out of the military and became a public school teacher and elementary school teacher and coach. Pretty much thought I'd spend my life teaching and coaching, heard the gospel in my early twenties. And then I really was burdened for ministry. I wanted to tell people to open their Bibles versus tell kids to open their math books. And then I kept teaching until I went into ministry part-time. And then the church grew and they hired me full-time. This was in California and I was an associate pastor then. And then there was an opening at Woodland Christian Church and we came here in 2010 and more likely spent our lives here. I read out my sermons really thoroughly, manuscripting them. My wife kept telling me for years I needed to turn them into books because she saw me really pouring my heart into him. And so then I took a lot of sermons. My first book was on marriage, like we'll be talking about. And it was kind of the running joke at the church that it was supposed to be the marriage month and ended up being like the marriage year because I kept preaching these sermons. I saw a real need and there's a lot of hurting marriages. And even if your marriage isn't hurting, people want stronger marriages. And so I was getting good feedback. I was enjoying the messages and all the preparation and Katie you know, our wives are our helpers. And she said, this has to be your first book. We needed to do this. And I know your book launches this week. So congratulations, brother. That's exciting. You know what goes into this. And probably if, honestly, if I knew what went into it, I might not have done it. But because I was oblivious, I threw myself into that first book. And then I was kind of bitten by the bug, you might say. And have continued turning sermons into books since then. I love it. Yeah. I I don't want to scare off any would-be authors by making it sound so big and hairy and scary like so many people do about having a child and a lot of other things in life that I do over and over again. But yeah, it it is a lot more work and there is a lot more to it than I ever would have imagined. I I can definitely relate with that now. Finally Mm -hmm. getting my first book out there. And that book was what? That first book, what was the title of that? Was that Marriage, God's Way? Yeah, I came from that series on marriage at my church, Marriage God's Way, and that's been my brand, God's Way. 
And then I was self-publishing and I started working with Harvest House. A literary agent took interest in me and then she secured a publisher. So I kind of have familiarity with both worlds there, which I think is unique because most people are either self-published or traditionally published. And so that's a whole other topic. After I learned how to do it, you know, I had all this knowledge. I just kept publishing. I'll probably stick with self-publishing. So how many books have you written to date now? Ten. Ten. Ten at this wow. point. Wow. Yeah. And I feel like I got a whole bunch more in me from all the sermons I've preached. It's just hard to balance things, you know. I got a lot of other things in my life, and the writing falls pretty far down on the list of, you know, as I prioritize things. Yeah. This is your most recent book I'm holding up right here for those that are watching the podcast on YouTube, right? Your Finance is God's Way. That's just what, maybe a few months now? How long has that been out? Yeah, that, that came out last year. Thanks for sharing that. Yep. And that was a blessing because I saw a need for finances for people to be equipped in that area too. Yeah. Our last guest, uh, I believe it was last week, was just sharing. And it's the second time I've had a guest share this with me, that there's more passages in the Bible talking about money. Over 2,000 passages talking about money is what I've been told. I've never counted them. I'm doing the best I can to control myself to not detour our <laughs> interview on that topic. But yeah, it's it's like one of Jesus's most common topics, more parables about money than almost anything except the kingdom of God. And so people don't think of money spiritually, but they really should, because what we do with it is incredibly spiritual. We're, we're to be faithful stewards. So that was what was the heart behind that book. I love that. Tell me, what is the key to your success in the context of having so many things going on. I mean, I feel like in a way I can relate with, and I'm sure many of our listeners can too, to whatever degree, just juggling a lot of balls. I mean, different roles, wearing different hats, different responsibilities for mothers and fathers out there alike. But I mean, you're a father, you're a husband to 10 children, you're a pastor, you're an author 10 times, you're a speaker, you're on podcasts like this. I mean, you were just on my cousin's podcast the other day. I mean, <laughs> How do you juggle it all? And what advice do you give to someone else to kind of a two-part question, I guess. Maybe it's one in the same answer to, like we were talking about earlier, not have a heart attack by 40 years old or, or whatever. Yeah, well said, Alan. So I, I got a few thoughts. So first you said success, and I do want to tell your listeners there's been a whole bunch of failure in there as well. Sometimes you feel like there's a lot more failure than success. And so I guess one thing I'd say is you don't quit. You don't stop. You've got to pick yourself back up. And even in a sermon on Sunday, I just shared the number of verses that talk about the wisdom associated with falling and then getting back up. So even God's word speaks to this. I mean, if we quit every time something doesn't go well, we're not going to do much for the church, our families, the Lord. And so I just felt as soon as you mentioned success, I thought it was really important to let your listeners know there's been an incredible amount of frustration associated with my journey and probably yours and probably anyone you interview who's done much of anything in life has failed numerous times along the way. Yeah. And so that's what it means to, to persevere is to not give up. And so it really comes down to priorities. You know, God becomes a man in the person of Jesus Christ, comes from heaven to earth. He can't do everything. He can't have relationships with everyone. He got tired. He had to rest. He had 12 people he was close with. He wasn't close with everyone. Of those 12, he had three, James, Peter, and John, he was closer with. If he went to one city, he didn't go to another city. It's opportunity cost. So to say yes to something is to say no to something else. And so one thing I heard that's been very instructive for me, and I hope might benefit your listeners, is that the enemy of best is good, or the enemy of what's best is what's good typically. Mm -hmm. So as believers, we're saying no to sinful things, but we're also frequently having to say no to good things to be able to do God's best. And that's why the enemy of best is what's good. You and I, and most of your listeners, I'm sure, 
could fill our lives. We don't have enough hours in the day to be doing all of the good things that are available to us. And so we have to prioritize and figure out what those things are that the Lord wants us to do. And so I'll give you an example, just using my life. So first is being a husband to Katie. Second is being a father. Oh, and by the way, sometimes people say, oh, first a Christian, second a father. I don't ever say first a Christian, second a husband, third a father, because you don't compartmentalize your life. Instead, you're a Christian husband. You're a Christian father. You're a Christian neighbor, a Christian employee. It's not like you're a Christian in this sphere of your life, but you're not a Christian over here as a father or husband. So I never say that. So first, I'm, I'm a husband to Katie. And then second, I'm a father to my children. Third, I'm a pastor to Willing Christian Church. And then fourth, I'm an author. And then fifth, I'm a speaker at times when I get invitations. And sometimes I'll say no to speaking invitations to ensure they don't conflict with the other things. But I have so many sermons over these years, I could have 15, 20 more books. I mean, the reason I don't have more books is because authoring falls pretty far down on that list compared to those. Now, there's other people, you know, they can commit their lives and ministry to writing. But for me, I can do that with the spare time that I have, which I don't have a whole lot of that I find each week. Who wants to get to the end of their life and feel like they were successful in one area to the exclusion of something more important? Like how many pastors have sacrificed their marriages or their families to be, let's say, more successful pastors? So, I mean, any author that says they don't care if they have a best-selling book is lying. So, of course, I'd love to have best-selling books, but I don't want to get to the end of my life and have my wife feel neglected or my children, you know, I didn't invest in them or share the gospel with them as much as I could have or spend as much time with them because I was busy writing books. And so it's not to say there's not room for that. You know, I've got room for books, but it's figuring out what's most important. Regarding the heart attack thing, that's interesting because some years ago, I haven't shared this story a whole lot, but Katie was becoming somewhat unhealthy in life and overwhelmed with Katie's your wife with me, Katie, my wife. Sorry about that. Yeah. And homeschooling, there were difficulties in the church and she started talking to me. She's like, you know, I don't know about you continuing to be a pastor. And I don't know about me continuing to be a pastor's wife. And I prayed and I felt God wanted me to be a pastor still. And I also know he wants me to be a good husband to Katie. So it's like, it wasn't like, I wasn't going to choose between these two. It was like, how can I get these to work together? Because I was convinced God wanted me to keep pastoring. I mean, I entertained it. You know, if your wife says, we value our wives, their thoughts. Genesis 2.18, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a helper. And one of the ways our wives help us is through their counsel. And so I encourage every man, greatly value what your wife. I mean, after the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, one of your greatest resources, or maybe your third greatest resource, is in fact your wife. You know, if a guy at church comes and says, hey, I'm wondering about this situation. And I say, what does your wife say? And he hasn't asked his wife. I'll say, well, I I think you need to go home and, and ask your wife. Maybe you need to ask her before you come and ask me, as important as elders in the church are. So anyway, so Katie, when she shared with me, she's like, I don't know if this is for us. You know, I don't know if I can keep doing this because I'm so overwhelmed. I really valued that. I prayed about it, felt God wanted me to keep pastoring. So I come back to Katie and I said, what do I need to do for you to be healthy? And at this point, Katie's like super glad that I kept pastoring. She's super glad that I didn't leave the ministry. It was after one of our children was born, there was hormones. You know, she's comfortable with me with, with me sharing this. She's a great, great, wonderful wife and, and godly woman. And in hindsight, she is glad that I, let's say, led or shepherded through that and didn't just in this moment, or it was kind of a moment that was more like a few weeks, give in and, you know, change the whole direction of our lives to our family's detriment. 
she even posted about it one day on Facebook. And, and I think my associate pastor saw it and came to talk to me about it and said how encouraged he was that Katie had this realization. But at the time, I didn't know how she'd feel in the future. So I just said, okay, I think God wants me to do this. What do I need to do for you to be healthy? And she said, you need to be done every day working at five and you need a full day off. By the end of the day, you know, she's kind of spent and she needs me to come and help her with the kids, put them in bed. And I said, I can do that. That's what we'll do. So that means saying no to many things. And that means if I do take up an evening to go do something, because there's obviously different evenings for counseling or visitations, then I've got to make that time up elsewhere in the week. And so I think if you ask Katie now, she'll say that she feels like there's a good balance. She's healthy. But that also means there's you know, books that aren't written or there might be interviews that I'll say no to or that I'll schedule you know, down the road because I don't have the bandwidth this week to try to fit that in. I love that, Scott. That's some wisdom, some great advice. I mean, a lot to summarize, but if I was summarizing a couple points, I'm throwing this back at you to correct me if I'm missing something because there's a lot that could be unpacked there, but to prioritize, that's one big message I heard. And the other message I heard mm-hmm. was, we've got to say no to a lot of good things <laughs> to have the time to do the most important things. Like you said, the good is the enemy of the great. I think you said it differently, but it's the same message, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. are those kind of the two of the main themes you would say are two pieces of advice in note form that we could take away from that? I would. And I would definitely say for most people, if they're married, then they've already got the first one figured out. Their spouse needs to be a priority. If they're a parent, then they've got the second one figured out. Their children need to be a priority. If they're a pastor, then their church is going to be third, you know, and if their job, if they're an employee or a lay person, then their job is going to be, you know, third or fourth. And if you can't figure out, you know, what exactly the Lord wants you doing, then that's a point of prayer. And we should all be asking that because we all have these limitations with time, energy, money, you know, we're finite beings. Mm. That's why I use that example. If Jesus himself couldn't do everything, there's no way that if God in the flesh can't, we can't. And so that's a good point of prayer for us to say, Lord, what do you want me doing? You know, and as much, what do you not want me doing? What do you want me saying no to? I love that. You've written a book on marriage. You've been married for how many years now? 2006. So 16 16 years, years, 17 years, 10 children later, 17 years, 10 children later, been through some stuff, no doubt. in in those years, I would imagine, I I know Mm -hmm. we have in 31 years, what advice would you give to somebody listening that says, Hey, you know, I don't have time for a marriage conference here on this episode, but what can you share with me, you know, in highlight fashion that I can take away from this to level up, improve, strengthen my marriage? Yeah, that's great, Alan. And I would encourage people, I'd point them to God's word. I'd point them to prayer together. I'd point them toward reading together. And I, I've kind of got this belief that I'll share with your listeners, and I can elaborate if you want. And I'll give you an example from counseling that'll illustrate this. So let's say people come in for counseling, and they almost always come into marriage counseling pretty late, too late. You know, they sh- probably should have come in weeks, months, maybe a year, years earlier. And they're at the point now, they're sitting on opposite sides of the couch, arms crossed, don't even want to look at each other. And a woman will unload on her husband. You know, she'll just look at me when he look at him while she says how horrible he is and unloving. And then the husband shares and he says how disrespectful his wife is and the way that she talks to him or about him, you know, talks to him in public or talks about him to friends. And then I'll ask them something like, what does your devotional time look like? Or what do your prayer lives look like? And maybe they think this is like some canned response from me, you know, and they say something like, well, are you listening? Did you hear what I just said about the way my wife or my husband talks to me? And I'll say, yes, I did. I I didn't miss that. But the reason to to speed this up that I do this is because I'm very convinced, Alan, that when that vertical is strong, our relationship with Christ is strong, the horizontal has a very good way of working itself out. 
And so our marriages are really reflections of our relationship with Christ. I began my marriage book this way because rare is the person who has a strong relationship with Christ who isn't going to be striving for a strong relationship with her spouse. And so why am I going to love Katie? I mean, she, she is lovable. She's a wonderful wife. She makes it easy. But primarily, I want to love my wife because I love Christ, right? Right. Let's say there's a husband and he's like, if I'm honest with you, Scott, I feel like I hate my wife. And there's many people I dealt with. And at times they did feel like Mm. they hate their spouse. And a husband will say, I don't want to love my wife. In fact, I can't stand her. I don't want to see her. And she doesn't deserve it. I'm not going to argue with him and say, oh, yeah, your wife deserves it. Because the truth is, she's a sinner. She doesn't. But who does deserve? Christ does. I'll say, don't think about what your wife's done for you, but think about what Christ has done for you. You're not doing this for your spouse. You're doing this for Christ because you love him. That's why we have to draw on the gospel, right? And so you can't get people to think horizontally. Horizontal is what got them into my office in the first place for the marriage counseling. We're trying to get them to think vertically. And so I'll frequently ask someone, I'll say, why do you treat your spouse the way you do? This is one of my first questions at marriage conferences that I do. And people kind of think about it and I'll say, okay, I'll just tell you the answer. You treat your spouse the way you do because of your relationship with Christ. Your relationship with your spouse is an outpouring or overflow. You treat your spouse the way you do because of your relationship with Jesus. And then a, suddenly a guy will be like, wow, you know, when I'm mistreating my wife, it's because I don't love Christ enough. Or a wife says, wow, I'm not respecting my husband or not submitting to him because I'm rebelling against Christ, right? That's a whole other conversation about submission. There's qualifications on it, but it's, a, it's one of the most repeated commands in the New Testament for wives to submit to their husbands. And so when a wife realizes, wow, failure to submit to my husband is actually failure to submit to Christ, then that is a whole paradigm shift for many people. And so husband says, I don't want to love my wife, but he'll generally acknowledge he wants to love Christ. And a wife will say, I don't want to submit to my husband, but she'll acknowledge she wants to submit to Christ. And so when they draw on that relationship, the vertical one versus the horizontal one, that's where we generally receive the fuel to love our spouse the way that we should. And too many times, if you're counseling a couple and you tell a husband, oh, you should love your wife, and you try to get him to think about his wife, He's furious with his wife. That's what is causing him to be unloving toward her. So you can't say, look at your wife. Don't you love her? He's like, no. So you got to get him to think about Christ instead of what Christ has done for him. And feelings follow actions, right? right? So as soon as that husband decides, I will love my wife, his feelings for her are going to follow those loving actions toward her. I mean, we choose whether we love. That's why we can even love our enemies. We have that stupid analogy from the world because the world is always causing us to view things wrongly, that a baby flies around with a bow and arrow, he shoots you, then you fall in love. This is why people say they can fall out of love. You know, love is this very random accidental thing. You're walking along, you trip and fall. Now you're in love. A guy comes home and tells his wife, I didn't mean to fall in love with this woman at work. We just kept running into each other in the break room. I didn't mean to fall out of love with you. Well, those are lies that people have been conditioned to believe by the world. The reality is we choose. If a man wanted to be honest, he would say to his wife, I have chosen not to love you any longer. And it's the same with respect. If a wife says, I don't feel like I respect my husband, I would say, well, he might not feel like he loves you. But these are choices. We choose whether to love someone. And a wife can choose to respect her husband even when it's difficult, like a husband can choose to love his wife even when it's difficult. That's so good. And, you know, it's it's a needed message. There's a few needed messages there that you just shared. But one, a recent one that you just shared is that feelings follow action. And I, I've experienced it. I know it to be true. I mean, I know it intellectually to be true, but I've actually experienced it in real life, you know. And it's such an important message because we're living in a day and age, and I think you just alluded to it, we're living in a day and age where 
that's not what the world is telling us. I mean, everything from movies to music to everything. Social media is all about, you know, follow your heart, follow your feelings, follow your emotions. And if love is tied to that, and people really believe that. I mean, I genuinely think there's a huge percentage of people that really believe that they don't have the understanding, biblical knowledge, the understanding, the godly perspective that that's not, that's not what it is. That's not what it's about. And I know for me, years ago, when we didn't have an amazing marriage, not by Nicole's fault, but by mine, because like you talked mm, about Katie, you know, Nicole's very lovable, very easy to love. She's wonderful. Amazing. I'm thankful to have a marriage now that outperforms most I know. But at the same time back then, it was like, ugh, so easy to focus on all the things that were wrong and focus on all the things I didn't like. And there was a time when God helped me to change my choice that I made, intellectually choose to walk out what he asked me to do and to love her, even whether I felt like it or not. And miraculously, she changed. I don't know that she changed at all, but things changed. And I love that you're sharing that. I just, I think it's a message that's very much needed that feelings follow actions. We need to take the right actions and trust that feelings will follow. And I'm so thankful that you shared that among other things that you shared. Yeah. I have a couple of comments about what you were saying. I really appreciate what you were saying too, Alan. And one point, now you tell me if I'm rephrasing well, what you said or summarizing well, what you said is people following emotions. You know, I deal with this. This is what my heart tells me. I mean, Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? And Christ says, pick up your cross, follow me, deny yourself. Don't do what you feel like doing or want to do. Instead, do the opposite, right? The Christian life is one of a denial of self, not throwing ourselves over to it. You said something about, you notice, and I I just want to tell you, brother, I, I genuinely appreciate your humility. I know that it wasn't whatever marriage struggles were not all on you. I'm sure Nicole is at fault, but I can tell you, rarely do I find a man that has the humility to take ownership like you just did. And so I just want to let you know, I really appreciate that. Very quickly, it's it's all about what he did or what she did. And when I get a guy that comes into counseling and starts discussing his weaknesses or failures, I immediately know it's not all on him because he just showed me the humility that tells me it's actually easier to be married to him because of the humility mm-hmm. that I just witnessed in counseling. But here's just one verse. It's in Ephesians 5, the primary marriage passage. And it says, husbands, love your wives. Christ loved the church gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now listen to this, Ephesians 5, 27. So he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy without blemish. So it actually says that he might present the church to himself. Christ gets the church that he prepares for himself. Christ sanctifies and cleanses the church and then receives the church that's holy without blemish that he has prepared for himself. But this is primarily a marriage passage. We're actually to look past Christ's relationship with the church to find the instruction for husbands and wives. So what it's actually saying, which you just highlighted, is that husbands generally get the wives they prepare for themselves. Wives are typically responders. So it doesn't surprise me whatsoever, Alan, that when you tell me that you were convicted, repented, the gospel worked in your heart as a husband, then Nicole followed suit and you saw positive changes in your wife because you were getting the wife that you were preparing 
for yourself. That's yeah. drawn right from Ephesians 5, 27. I'll, I'll, I'll have a husband, let's say he comes into my office and, and he starts trashing his wife because he wants me to kind of put my hand on his shoulder and say, oh, you're, you know, I feel so bad for you. It must be so terrible being married to such an ungodly, disrespectful, loud, obnoxious woman. You know, you're, you should divorce her. I mean, that's many people do want to hear something like that. They want a pastor to give him permission to divorce or, or separate. And so I'll say to this husband, you know, you've been acting this way or you've been this cruel to your wife, what is your time praying with her or reading the word with her looked like? You know, have you been sanctifying her? Have you been cleansing her with the word? Would she be acting this way if you had been reading the word with her? Or have you pretty much just gotten the wife that you prepared for yourself? And so I, I greatly appreciate your example with Nicole. I'm not surprised that when God convicted you, and you owned it versus shifting blame, blaming your job or your work or your wife or your family or whatever, that you grew and then saw a positive response in Nicole as a result. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I had the 50-50 mindset that's also so prevalent. You know, it's like, hey, and it's expectations. I'm going to do this, this, and this, and I'm going to do this for you. And I expect, that's conditional love, right? And you're going to do this, this, and this for the household, for the kids, and for me, you know? And when it doesn't go that way, which it never does, nobody wins. But I've come to learn, and by God's grace, only he can help me walk it out on a daily basis. And I fail more often than I'd like to admit, even today. But when I'm, my mindset is it's 100%. It's all in. It's everything. My everything is to give regardless of what we get in return. And I love what you're bringing out, the truth that what comes back in return oftentimes is amazing. What is one thing you wish you would have known much sooner? Maybe a practical piece of advice, real practical in marriage, because as we both know, there's always challenges in marriage, right? It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a never ending thing that we need to be devoted to and work at and for our, our spouses and our marriage. But what's one good solid piece of advice you could give with our listeners? Sure. And I'll, I'll give one for husbands and then I'll give one for wives who are listening. So Love it. I have this tension, Alan. I don't know if I'd say I'm a hypocrite, but I'm, I've at least struggled to figure out the balance that exists between a husband being a spiritual leader and dwelling with his wife in an understanding way. So first Peter 3, 7 says, dwell with your wife in an understanding way but we're also called the head of the relationship. We're to be leaders. I understand servant leaders, you know, lead our wise way. Christ loved the church. It's not an authoritative, dictatorial, cruel, or harsh. It's a loving, gentle way, but leader nonetheless. Well, leading at times involves people doing things they don't want to do or that are challenging for them. And so there were times, especially when we had younger children, that I was leading Katie and I don't want to sound like I'm making excuses, but I actually believed I was doing what was best, but I was being insensitive to her. So she wouldn't want to do something. Maybe she didn't want to go to church camp. And camp's hard anyway, but then when you've got a whole bunch of little children and your husband is the pastor and he's not available to help you with the with food or meals or putting kids to bed because he's running around ministering to people at, at campsites. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm going to be a good leader and I'm the pastor. You're the pastor's wife. We need to be at camp. And that's how Katie was kind of getting unhealthy. So I didn't recognize early enough that there's this tension between leading your wife, but also being sensitive to her. And many times leadership means saying, I'm not going to do this so that I can defer to my wife or being sensitive to your wife. And when she says, I don't want to do this, or this is too difficult saying, okay, so there's actually been a couple of years she didn't come to camp. Maybe she just had a baby or actually here's something we did too. I told the church, I said, I want to go to camp. I just can't be the one doing the teaching every night. Maybe we bring in a speaker or we share the load. And everyone was great about it. Nobody complained. 
I felt like I had this responsibility to go to everyone's campsite and spend time with everyone. And then Katie's back at our camp, overwhelmed and stressed with all these little kids. And that was not good for her. And as soon as I told the elders, I'm like, I need to do this for Katie. Everyone's like, great, you should have done this earlier kind of thing. And so there's a tension where being a leader also means recognizing our wives' strengths and weaknesses, being sensitive to them and not leading them to do things that overwhelm them, stress them out, especially if they're, you know, they're homeschooling, they have kids, they're, or whatever the case, everyone's families look different. But part of dwelling with our wives in an understanding way is understanding them, having knowledge of them is how it's translated in some translations. Now, the other one that I'd say, because I've noticed this with wives, so I'm just sharing things that I've noticed from counseling. I'll do marriage conferences. In between messages, people come up to the booth and I'll have a line of people that want to talk to me. So I've heard lots of the same things. Many people come with many of the same issues. And here's what happens. I'm talking about husbands being spiritual leaders. And there'll be a wife that comes. And here's the thing, Alan. It's pretty easy for me to get up in front of people, preach, teach. And I project that on other guys. So I assume because it's easy for me, it's easy for other guys. So I say, hey, read the Bible with your family. Hey, pray with your family. And I don't realize, because that's not scary for me, that, that that's actually terrifying for other men. Now, I see guys building their homes, working on cars. I mean, I can't handle a power tool to save my life. You know, so when I see these guys that do these things, these guys are like, you know, my heroes. I'm terrified of what they're doing. Like they say they never want to be behind the pulpit. I look at them and I'm like, I never want to have to try to fix things in my house. So a wife comes up to me and she's saying, you're talking about men being spiritual leaders. And I'm thinking, you need to understand the major part you play in your husband being a spiritual leader because he's afraid to do so. I've had a lot of guys who have come up and said, I want to read the word with my family, but I'm afraid I won't know what to say. I don't know what version of the Bible to use. I don't know what chapter or verse to start in. I want to pray with my family, but what if I don't sound good? And here's what I noticed, Alan. Many women have no idea the major part they play in their husband's spiritual leadership in the home. I was invited to speak at this ladies' conference. And I was super excited to do so because I had an opportunity to tell all these women how their husbands were feeling about reading the Bible with their families. And you could see women, they're like, wow, I had no idea that my husband was afraid to read the Bible with us because he might sound silly. I told this one couple, I didn't want to correct the husband in front of his wife. And I talked to him privately and his wife was like, why won't he be a spiritual leader? Why won't he read the word with us? I want to follow him. I want to submit to him, but I can't if he doesn't even lead. And I knew her. She was a spiritual woman. I get alone with him privately because I don't want to seem like I'm correcting him in front of her. And I said, hey, brother, look, your wife wants you to read the word with your family. And I think if you do that, it's going to be a huge blessing. It's going to mean a lot to her. So I really think you should try to do that. So they come back like a month later into my office and he looks super discouraged. And I said, well, what happened? He said, well, we read the Bible together as a family. And I said, okay. And he said, but every single time I said anything, my wife criticized me. She questioned me. She second-guessed everything I said. She said, that's not right. I listened to this pastor. And he said this. He said, I never want to open the Bible with her again. And so my point is, and I would say this to all your wives, if your husband will pray with you or read the word with you, you're in like the 0.00001% of the population that has a husband who will do that. I mean, I don't care if your husband fumbles every word and doesn't understand what any verse means. The fact that he's opening the word and it's going out and washing over the family, you need to be thankful for that. You know, look him in the eyes and thank him for being a godly man and praise him for being a spiritual leader. So here's what I'm saying. 
Alan, I've noticed that wives will compare their husbands to other men, and they want their husband to be like that pastor on the radio or their pastor at church or the, the guy at the conference. And most guys, if my wife compared me to other guys, at least the guys that are building their houses, working on their cars, fixing the things, I'm going to look like this total failure. So by God's grace, Katie tries not to look at my weaknesses and tries to focus <laughs> on my strengths, because otherwise she'd probably be pretty discouraged if she did it the other way around. I love what you shared in that regard. And I don't think personally, I don't think many wives, I will say, even my own wife. So that's why I believe this. I don't believe women realize the power they have. I don't know if the power is the right word, but I'm going to use that word. The power they have, the ability they have, the influence they have to encourage us men. I mean, we crave respect from from people, humans, and probably no other person than our wife. And as I was just sharing with Nicole, you know, you mentioned my book launch this week of that we're recording this. I've told her a couple of times, you know, I'm so thankful that book is our book. You know, yes, I wrote it, but it's our book. I could not have written that book without you. You're such an encouragement and inspiration. You are an encourager through the process. You are a sounding board. You make me feel like Superman. And those are things that make me be able to feel like I can do 10 times more than what I could do without that. And so, I mean, those are just some other practical ways I just want to add on to what you're saying, just to put an exclamation point on it, because I believe so strongly from personal experience that what you're saying is true. I mean, to have a wife that says you're great and you're doing great and I'm proud of you in any area, whether it's leading the family and reading the Bible or any other area for that matter, even going out beyond that, it's huge, huge. Yeah, huge, and, I'll, huge. and I'll say something, Alan, that I've, I've noticed. A woman might be listening to this and she says, well, you know, I'm afraid to praise my husband because then he won't notice his weaknesses or he won't yeah. feel bad about the things he's doing wrong. And this is what I want to say to any women who are listening. Your husband is going to strive to live up to the bar or down to that you set for him. So for example, Katie, I mean, I'm, I can almost get emotional thinking about it, thinks more of me than she should. She thinks I'm a better husband, father, or man than I am. When she sends me an encouraging message about being a husband or father, I don't read that and then go like this. Oh, okay, now I don't have to try anymore. I read that and it's like, man, I want to do what's right. I want to I live up to what she's saying. I want to be the husband or father that she thinks that I am. Yeah. If Katie writes me and says, you know, you're doing a good job here or a good job there, that gives me even more motivation to try to be the husband or father that she's describing. And so a husband can live up to her. He can live down. When a woman is chastising her husband, treating him like he's a little boy in trouble, you know, wagging her finger in his face, second guessing all his decisions. And I'm not saying that a wife can never correct her husband or second guess his decisions. But if she does this habitually, She's going to have a husband that acts more like a little boy who feels like he's in trouble all the time. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell wives, you need to sometimes let your husband fail, like let that weight of responsibility rest on his shoulders. And, you know, if you've already told him twice that the gas lights on, maybe you need to let him run out of gas and enjoy a little date on the side of the road or something with your husband. But don't you can get to the point where you're nagging. You're almost nagging if you just stay on your husband over and over and over and let that mantle don't take it off your husband's shoulders and put it on yours let it fully rest on his and let him feel that weight of responsibility love it such great advice i've got a couple final questions for you before we wrap this up this has been super awesome is there a particular book you might recommend for the life's hard succeed anyway audience 
You mean for marriage or do you mean just in general? I'm asking in general, but let's go, let's go marriage. We've been, had a good conversation about marriage. What, what about marriage? I mean, you got marriage your way. Obviously, you, you believe in your book or you wouldn't have written it. Um, is that the number one book you'd recommend on marriage or what? So Paul Tripp, many people think of love and respect. And I mean, you can listen to our conversation. We've talked a lot about husbands loving their wives, wives respecting their husbands. And I do think that's a great book. I quoted Emerson in my book. I reached out to him for an endorsement and said, hey, I love what you've done. You know, would you endorse my book? But Paul Tripp wrote a book that was called What Did You Expect? And I think they republished it as Six Gospel Truths, but it's essentially the same book. I was really blessed by that book. We've done actually bringing our church through right at this time. Another gentleman is leading our church through that study. What did you expect? This is the second time we've done it. And so I really think that Paul Tripp was onto something great when he highlights the gospel so much. Because here's the thing, brother, it can be so discouraging to listen to something like this and think we kind of have to white knuckle it and do all of it in our own effort. You know, a guy's listening, it's like, oh, I just need to try harder. You know, when a wife's listening, oh, I need to try harder. Well, most of your husbands and wives who are listening have already been trying very hard and don't want to be told to try harder. Well, what Paul was doing was he was able to look to the gospel's work in our lives and encourage people to be equipped or empowered by the gospel transforming us, where then it's almost less working hard and more of surrendering to Christ and letting him work in us and through us. And so I do think highly of Paul's, I think he's like a Presbyterian guy, I'm a Baptistic guy, but I'm thankful for him. And I feel like he he knows how the gospel works and how God wants to use it to equip us to do the things that he wants, whether marriage or any other area of life. Scott, what is your definition, kind of getting away from marriage and just going back general and broad again, what is your definition of success? Have you ever thought much about that? Yeah, well said, brother, and I think everyone should. Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher, he made a decision that every day he was going to think about the day of his death. Essentially, every day he was going to think about when he stands before Christ. We want to hear, well done, good, and nobody wants to think about death. I mean, that's the last, and every day he was going to wake up and it was one of his determinations he think about when he stands before the Lord and hears, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And that means to me, success is being the husband, the father, you know, pastor, that God wants me to be. It doesn't mean having as many speaking engagements as possible, writing as many books. It means doing the speaking engagements God wants me to do. And I love what you said, brother. And I don't, I don't remember if this was just during our conversation or if it was during the actual interview, but I'll, I'd be happy to draw more attention to it. You said about your book, that you wrote it and are happy that you were obedient. And that stuck with me. I like that because many people's like, I wrote this book. I want all the sales. I want all the money. I want to you, the consequences, it's in the Lord's hands. You did what the Lord wanted you to do. And I just, I think that's fantastic, brother. And I mean that. And so to me, success is that boils down success, doing what the Lord wants you to do. Whether it looks successful in the world's eyes or not, whether it sells a lot of copies, whether it you know, builds a big church or, I mean, how many guys have built big churches, but not doing it the Lord's way. And there's a lot of guys laboring bivocational, small. I dedicated one of my books to bivocational pastors because I have so much respect for them. Now they might not look successful in the world's eyes, but if we get to heaven and those guys have, you know, get 10, 20 times more rewards than me or some missionary serving in some third world country, I know he doesn't look very successful. And if God rewards him 50, a hundred times more than me for that, for that excruciating ministry he, he endured for, you know, decades, then I hope I'm like, hey, he deserves it, you know, good for him. So essentially success to me is doing what the Lord wants us to do and then getting to the end of our lives and hearing well done, good and faithful servant. I love it. 
What excites you about the future, Scott, when you think about it today? Yeah, thanks, Alan. So, well, I'm excited to meet our 10th child. We're naming him Hudson Taylor, if your listeners are familiar with him, the missionary with China Inland Mission. I'm excited about watching my kids get older. We're entering the teenage years. My daughter's getting her license. And and I'm, I guess I just really say I'm excited to see what the Lord wants to do in our lives, our family, our church. I think there's things he's always doing and we get to sit back and observe it. And when we're really blessed, be part of it. And so that is very exciting to me. That is exciting. What is the best way for our listeners to be able to connect with you, follow along on your journey, see your books, get your books, all that good stuff? Yeah, thank you, Alan. So my website, scottlapierre.org, you'll have the link to it in the show notes. They can go there. I have a YouTube channel where I put up all my sermons, messages, conference messages. People can find those. But my website is where they can get the links to my books. They can find all my books on Amazon. Just go to Amazon, search for Scott Lapierre. But my website, one reason I'd encourage your listeners to go to my website is there's a free gift I want to give them. It's called Seven Biblical Insights for Marriage. It's a short read. You know, it's not, not a novel. It's seven insights they're drawn, just to be transparent, drawn from my marriage book. And I hope that people would read these and be encouraged and, you know, drawn to Christ. And if any of your listeners are, you know, money's tight or anything, I'd be happy to give them uh, free electronic copies of my books. If someone's listening and it's like, you know, boy, I'd love to get your marriage God's way, but I don't have the money for it. You know, I didn't write books to make money. I would, I'd be happy to, for them to reach out through the contact page and give them a free electronic copy. So I love it. So Scott, up here, dot dot org and like you said we'll have that in the show notes below this has been awesome scott so helpful uh hopefully encouraging for the listeners i know it's been encouraging for me and just inspires me even more to love my wife even better and serve her at a higher level any closing comments you want to share with our listeners on the way out i'm thankful alan for this opportunity having me on the show i'm thankful for what you and nicole are doing and and just being being able to be your friend and and sharing this journey you know with each other for any of your listeners if any of them weren't believers haven't yet surrendered their lives to christ my encouragement would be life's hard succeed anyway the greatest success is following christ being his disciple you know god gave his son to take the punishment for our sins so that we wouldn't have to be punished for them and so if there's any of your listeners who haven't repented and believed in Christ, then I couldn't give them any greater encouragement than to do that. And I second that wholeheartedly changed my life 23 years ago. Best decision I ever made. Thank you so much, Scott. Thanks for your time. This has been awesome, brother. Thanks a lot, Alan. God bless you and your listeners. If you love this podcast, grab some of Alan's free resources on his website at alanblain.com, spelled A-L-L-A-N-B-L-A-I-N.com. You can also find links to Alan's Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok there in his contacts page. Lastly, if you can leave a five-star review for us on your favorite podcast app, that will get these messages out to more people and it will really mean the world to us. Thanks in advance and make it a great day.